You're listening to episode 61 of the National Centre for Writing podcast. Every week we tell stories about writers and discuss writing techniques. I'm Simon Jones, Digital Marketing Manager here at the Centre, and I'm joined by Communications Manager Steph McKenna. Hello, Simon. Hello. So on the pod today, we have Kate Griffin, who is back to talk to Jeremy Chiang and Anton Her, who were both residents here in the cottage a month or so back. Uh, before we get on to that, we should probably talk about Noirage, yes. which begins this week. It- literally begins tomorrow the build-up is finally paying off we're finally there um four days of crime antics crime writing crime literature beginning tomorrow with james runcie at gerald um talking about his prequel to the Grandchester mystery series which will be really exciting then we're over at uea uh, with george alagaya headlining on the friday um, yeah, and that's which a whole is evening of events a huge it? evening triple bill of crime writing with a more of a kind of environmental activist kind of edge I guess to it um it's gonna be really really interesting I think George is bringing out uh, a novel his first debut crime novel um The Burning Land but it features I think a lot of it was drawn from his experiences as a foreign correspondent so it's sort of that mesh of real life and fact and fiction I guess really it sounds like he's gonna be talking about how increasingly difficult environmental factors Mm. are generating new types of crime yes Uh, yeah there's a huge uh spread of sort of uh fiction coming out now called uh cli-fi climate fiction uh it's very much a uh a running theme in a lot of fiction that's coming out now because it's something that's very much in the forefront of our minds so um i think it'll be a really interesting topical evening absolutely and then we we're back at dragon hall so in our lovely dragon hall we get to use it uh one more time during sort of i guess it's the close of festival season in a way isn't it um and we'll be welcoming Denise Miner, uh, Louise Doughty, who's a, a UEA alumna and also the author of Apple Tree Yard. We've got panels on uh, gourmet crime, so a bit of taste of murder, food and crime coming together there. Yeah, we've got our debut panel coming back, which we is do. always very popular, so you can discover some new crime writers. Some of the best titles coming out this year from new crime writers, which, as you say, is very exciting. Yeah, if you basically would need an excuse to hang around in Dragon Hall for an entire weekend oh, listening great. to great writers. And crime writers are always really interesting and entertaining and funny. They're the nicest people as well, you know, for people who are writing often about very kind of, you know, macabre things. (laughs) They're really, really friendly and lovely. And so is everyone who goes to the festival. I think they get it out of their system in their books. Yeah, I think they do. what remains is just lovely people. Just lovely and at peace. But um, we've also got some great catering on site. And I'm especially excited for the Saturday because gringos are going to be doing some crime-themed nachos, which I'm... Very excited for as a vegetarian, they've got a special uh, jackfruit barbecue nacho stacked plate, which I'm just, you know, it's just just adds to the fun, really. Yeah, and you've not it? been talking about that all day. No, you? I haven't at all. We've also got uh, we've got crime themed cocktails at the Ivy in on London Street, so they've they've named a series of cocktails after uh, Cluedo characters to celebrate Noirage. So there's plenty going on. It's definitely worth checking out the website and grabbing your last few tickets. Yeah, so if you head to noirage.co uk that's n-o-i-r-w-i-c-h you can find out about the entire lineup grab tickets and get ready for the weekend so we've had some noirage themed podcasts just a couple of episodes back we had claire mcgowan who is giving a workshop on friday mm. but if you want to get some uh, and get some insight into creating characters and designing an ongoing crime series that's fantastic that's episode 59 henry sutton the co-director of the festival was on the pod episode 54 taking us through the program and his highlights and the things he's really looking forward to. And if you rewind even further, 
You can actually listen to the Noirage lecture from last year, which was delivered by none other than Val McDermott. So that's way back on episode 14. So, well, uh, that was a while ago, it wasn't was, it? It was, yes. And of course, we've got George Alagaya delivering it this Friday. Um, so back to the podcast today. And we have Jeremy and Anton who talk about all kinds of things to do with translation from mentorships and how you can find out about it, how you get into translation as a professional. They talk a lot about Tilted Axis, the organization set up by Deborah Smith, who was also on the podcast back in episode two. Well done. Good, good know, way to... Yeah. Got links <laughs> everywhere. Um, the discussion is wide ranging and really fascinating. They talk about the history of Singapore. They talk about queer Korean literature. It's, yeah, 40 minutes of really fascinating stuff with two very, very talented individuals. So let's hand over to Kate, who is talking to Jeremy and Anton. I'm sitting here with um, our two translators in residence, uh, Jeremy Tiang and Anton He. I was wondering if we could start maybe by asking you to introduce yourselves and just talk a little bit about your life as literary translators. Jeremy? Hi, I'm Jeremy Tiang. Um, I translate primarily novels and plays, very occasionally poetry or essays. Um, I also write fiction and plays. Um, I've translated coming up to 20 books now and probably about the same number of plays. Um, and I do it full time. I live in New York, but work for people all over the world. Thank you. Anton? I'm Anton Herr. I have done a lot less than Jeremy has done. Uh, I have, in this country, I've published The Underground Village, a collection of short stories by Kang kyung out from Onford Star. I studied law, and then I studied literature, and I work as a translator and simultaneous interpreter for a little over 10 years, and then I managed to transition into full-time literary translation which is not necessarily any better than other kinds of interpretation or translation, but it was just something that I personally really wanted to do. So I um, got a few grants and managed to string together a nascent literary translation career, and here am I today. That's great. Thank you both. Um, I wanted to start off really by talking about the kind of support that as literary translators you've received kind of at different stages of your career and how that has helped you make the transition into uh, a literary translation career. I guess there's two main types of support, um, financial and professional. Um, and both have been essential, especially to start with, but just being able to pay my rent was kind of the big hurdle. Because um, it takes such a long time to translate a book. But you also have to devote all of that to it without having a day job. Because publishers often won't extend their deadlines that far. Um, so I was quite lucky early on to um, get a Penheim grant and an NEA Literary Translation Fellowship um, that's in the US. But also when I first started working with Zhang Yuran, who was the first author I translated uh, she was able to get grant funding from China. Um, I think it was the Chinese Publishers Association, and that helped to pay for the first two books I did. In professional terms, um, 
I've been lucky enough to meet a lot of very helpful translators along the way. I think translators by nature are collaborative and community building and will support you just by giving you the advice and moral support that is necessary early on. Um, and I've been the beneficiary of both. And now, whenever I can, I try to pay it back. You've been involved in a number of mentoring schemes, haven't you, for literary translators, including our own. Could you tell us a little bit more about the, the different schemes you've been involved in and kind of why you've wanted to take part in them as a mentor? Well, well, I said I had a lot of advice and support from more established translators. I never had a formal mentor and I never really had someone sitting me down and taking me step by step through the profession, particularly how you break into it, which once you're on the inside seems quite straightforward, like there are a set number of things that you do. But from the outside, it's impenetrable and it isn't immediately obvious how you get to where you need to be. Like, I think everyone can envision themselves actually translating a book, but how you get to the point of being given permission, how you get a contract, how you get the foreign rights um, are much harder. And there's no real, like, there isn't, they're starting to be, but it's still not as comprehensive as it could be advised, say, on the internet. You can't just Google, how do I translate a book? Um, so what I try to do is as systematically and comprehensively as possible um, give emerging translators all the advice and information I wish I'd had in one complete package when I started out. Um, just because otherwise it can you can spend years going about things the wrong way or just not doing the simple things that you didn't know you needed to do to get where you needed to be. Um, and everyone's journey is going to be a bit different, but at least this way I can try to give people as many of the tools that they need as possible. Yeah, the mentorship that you've be, um, been working on with us is funded by Tilted Access Press, um, and it's particularly to encourage uh, literary translators in the UK from a black, Asian or minority ethnic background um, to consider translation as a profession. Um, what's your experience of that been? Well, my experience of the translation world is that it has been, on the whole, very a very white space, um, even though um, BAME people are much statistically much more likely to speak another language. Um, and that correlates with publishing as a whole being a very white space. So I think this is a valuable um, way into the industry for people who might not otherwise have considered it, or might not have felt it was for them. Um, I've been working with Kavita Barnott as the first recipient of this mentorship. Um, and she's doing some really exciting work with Punjabi communities um, in the UK. And we've been investigating the possibility of her translating into a more Indian English register rather than so-called standard English. And that has been something that I've done because I have worked with books from Singapore and Malaysia and tried to use the Englishes of those countries rather than, again, what a publisher might think of and particularly what a copy editor might think of as the norm. Um, so I, this isn't necessarily correlated to ethnicity, but I think it, it does play a role that because we're outside of the mainstream, um, both Kavita and I 
have found that what we want to do and the ways we want to translate aren't necessarily mainstream ways. Um, so the mentorship in this case hasn't just been about getting into the profession, but positioning herself within it in a certain way. And that's something that I'm still negotiating for myself. I still feel like I haven't quite found my place and there's certain occasions when I'm not quite sure what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think I'm getting better at navigating it. And also I'm starting to realize that maybe that isn't exactly a place for me and that I need to create one. Um, so it's also, I guess, a form of allyship. It's a way of reaching out to someone saying, I'm kind of alone in this too, but I've been around a bit longer and I've carved out a bit of space and here's what I've done. And also we can stand together now and maybe be that bit more visible. So I think um, Deborah Smith and Tilted Axis have been visionary in setting this up as one would expect from looking at the books they've published. And I'm delighted that it's going to continue for at least another year. That's great. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Um, Anton, I think we first met at the BCLT summer school when you were in the Korean to English workshop. So the kind of support that we receive for for example, uh, that workshop was funded by the Korean Translation Institute. No, sorry, Literary Translation Institute of Korea. I mean, it's not my fault that I get their name wrong because they changed their name a couple of times now. Hangong Munak Panyogon, Literary Translation Institute of Korea, LTI Korea. And so, uh, and I'm also here on this residency thanks to them. I attended a uh, translation academy for a year full time, thanks to them. So, and they are very. Uh, passionate about funding Korean literature in translation, not just into English, but into every um, publishable language imaginable, you know, Polish, um, Japanese, it's all over the world. It's just Korea just has this culture of, um, has a very literary culture, I feel. If you go to bookstores in Korea, people still read lots of poetry. You have poetry, poet, like, poets that are bestsellers and uh, if you say that you are a writer in Korea, you are given a certain amount of respect. People don't necessarily think, oh, you're, they they don't look down at you as some kind of dilettante or whatnot, but uh, there's still a kind of reverence for the written word and for publishing. We have such a long history of publishing. We, It's said that we invented movable type, movable metal type. And of course we have our amazingly scientific um, letter system, Hangul, which enabled everyone, women, children, the poor, anyone to be able to read and to be able to write. So um, it's a accumulation of these factors. And also the Korean government also feels very strongly about being about promoting Korean culture and Korean interiority. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, which is why so so which is why there's so much Korean government money, not just from LTI Korea, but also the Korean uh, publishers, the Korean publishing industry promotion agency, or um, Daesan Foundation, which is run by Kyobo, which is an insurance company, and also they also own the biggest bookstore in Korea because they believe in uh, reading and books so much. So there, uh, compared to other language groups, I think. Korean language, uh, Korean literary translation is pretty well funded, although we could, of course, use more money. <laughs> <laughs> and um, how did you end up at the BCLT summer school and how useful was it for you? 
It was, oh, it was very, very useful. I can't even imagine what a week can do for, for your career. Uh, so LTI Korea had a partnership, I believe, with BCLT Summer School where LTI would fund a workshop in Korean. And they had done it the year before with Deborah Smith. And then they did it again in 2016, I think, was the first time I did it. Uh, with, and that was also with Deborah Smith in 2018 with Elmer Luke, who used to be Murakami Haruki's, sorry, Haruki Murakami in English, Haruki Murakami's uh, editor, English editor. So I took uh, Elmer's class and I also took Deborah's second class. And both weeks I was here, it wasn't, I mean, Elmer and Deborah, of course, are really great instructors, but it was also the uh, friendships and just the camaraderie of the whole experience of being with other literary translators, like what um, what Jeremy said before about how the, uh, we, we are a community and people are very willing to help you and and sort of demystify the process for you if you ask them. I remember, for example, the German translator, Katie Derbyshire, she basically laid out a plan as to how do you publish a completely unpublished, untranslated writer in into English. And I did exactly what she said, and it worked. <laughs> so um, thank you, Katie, if you're listening to this, your, your, translate, your book, Gentleman Jack, your translation is amazing. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, the people that we meet here is really, really important. Um, when I came to this residency, I thought, oh, it's going to be great. Uh, there's a cottage. There's, you know, there's a medieval herb garden. You know, there's time to write. There's lots of natural light. Uh, and they said, oh, there's going to be another translator with you. And I said, oh, um, and it was Jeremy. And I was just very excited because especially in the Asian language groups, Jeremy is very revered and respected. So I was sort of, I was very excited and also very nervous at the same time. <laughs> But uh, he turns out to be extremely, extremely helpful and just the nicest, uh, most down-to-earth person that you could ever hope for. And he's been mentoring me. <laughs> and uh, it's been a really great experience. I'm glad. Um, this is uh, the first time we've had translators in residence in the cottage. I was just wondering, Jeremy, why you applied for the residency and what you hoped it would bring for you. <laughs> I was excited by the strand training the trainer at the summer school which this residency was time to coincide with. Um, because earlier on I said I felt like I was making it up as I went along. Um, when it came to translation, I sort of figured my own way into the industry. Um, but really, I've been a mentor for four or five programs now, and I still feel like I'm making that up as I go along in that I pass on the information I know and I try to make it as systematic as possible, but I don't have a particular pedagogy. I don't really have um, an idea of what it is I want to convey, except the information and, if you will, philosophy of what I do. Um, so I'm really hoping to observe how other people teach and how translation itself can be taught um, and the best ways you set up emerging translators for success, because that's something I want to do more of. Um, and I think that the industry as a whole needs. I know there are starting to be MFAs in translation. I'm, I think, agnostic about whether this is the best way forward. Um, 
or whether it needs to be more of an apprentice, um, hands-on way of teaching how this is done. I do think more teaching is needed because you do find a lot of people who are outside wanting to get in mm -hmm. and it can be very hard and frustrating. Um, and even when you give them the information, it's often not enough. There isn't really um, a way of inducting people. And even mentorships are only one-on-one, -on -one, so you can only do so much for so many people. Um, so I'm hoping that through this, we can maybe put together something that's a more meta view of the way the summer school works and the way teaching works in general and how you um, pass on this this thing we do that's that is an art but hasn't always been thought of as one and hasn't been thought of as a profession in this way, the way we think of it as an, a creative profession for very long. Um, I think that's something we're groping our way towards and that's something I really hope to learn more about or to have a stronger idea about by the end of this. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit more now about the work that you translate and write. Um, Jeremy, one of the themes in your translation and in your own writing is the underexplored side of Singaporean history, um, and in particular, the communist insurrection in Malaysia. It's the subject, I believe, of the Singaporean author that you're translating while you're here, um, and also your own novel, State of Emergency, which won the Singapore Literature Prize last year. I was reading one of the reviews and the reviewer described your novel as well-researched, informative and even-handed in its view of a chapter of Singapore's history about which many of us know little. Um, I wondered if you could just tell us a little more about this and why you've explored this area. I think there's been a kind of collective amnesia um, in Singapore in terms of our leftist past and particularly the period between World War II and independence when the country's future was up for grabs, it felt, and could have gone in all kinds of different directions. I think now, and Singapore's not alone in this, we look back at our history and go, well, it was inevitable the way it turned out. Um, but actually, there was a strong leftist presence in Singapore, and communism was in a very different place in the 50s and 60s. And I find it interesting to explore this period just in and of itself, without necessarily taking sides because it's so little talked about. Um, and just the fact that there were guerrillas in the jungles of Malaysia until 1989 is something that's really difficult to believe because, you know, in, in the 80s, I was having a normal childhood and well, as, as normal as one gets. But um, <laughs> my, my mother's Malaysian, so we go up to Malaysia quite often and... I don't think I was aware that there was a guerrilla battle going on not that far away from where we were. Um, so while I was going on these childhood visits to family in Malaysia, not too far away, um, Haifan, the author I'm currently translating, was in the jungle. Um, he went into the jungle as a guerrilla in 1977, the year I was born, and stayed there until 1989 when the final treaty was signed. Um, and now he's in Singapore and leading, I guess, an, a normal life, um, writing stories about his time in the jungle, his time as a communist guerrilla, 
And it's really hard to bend my mind around the fact that all of these things happened in this one person's lifetime, um, that he could have lived such different lives and that he can now write about it so vividly, but also um, so, well, I'm going to use that word again, even-handedly. I would say that he believes that what he did was right and was the only choice he had, but he also is very fair in in acknowledging where Singapore is and what has happened and that the path the country has taken, for better or worse, has um, done good things for a lot of people, um, whilst there, of course, also being a lot of things that maybe could have been done better. So I, I like to complicate um, simple narratives, and I think the story Singapore tells about itself is a very simple narrative. And what Haifan is doing is showing that actually it's a lot more nuanced and that there are a lot of shadow histories that need to be brought out into the light. The book has done quite well in the Chinese-speaking world, um, but the Chinese publishing scene in Singapore and Malaysia is fairly limited. So by bringing the book into English, I hope to share it with a wider audience, both in the country, countries, Singapore and Malaysia, of its origins, as well as wider within the Anglosphere. I just want to add that Jeremy's book, State of Emergency, I mean, obviously historically important and yada, 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 but it's also very entertaining. It's a very well-written book. Um, it's one of those stories that, it's one of those novels that doesn't really sag anywhere because it keeps changing the narrator. And there's a new story. Uh, it, it, it's it, like the narrators take turns telling the story and it has like the most amazing ending. So, I don't want people to. I don't want people to have the impression that this is like a kind of like oh very straightforward historical novel that you're probably going to ignore. It's really entertaining, and you should read it. Uh, there's a copy in the New Millennium Library here in Norwich. If you're interested. Thanks, Anton. Yeah, I should say that um, a lot of this is. Well, I do have a lot of sympathy with socialist ideology, and that I think we could stand to learn a lot from the leftist movements of the 50s in their vision for what Singapore and Malaysia could have been. Primarily, I was fascinated by this period of history. I mean, it's just, to me, endlessly interesting. And I think that's been the biggest motivation for me. Yes, and you really bring it alive through the story of the family, um, the different members of the family from the 1940s onwards. Anton, you've recently curated a feature for Words Without Borders um, on queer Korean writing. And in the introduction, you say that Korean literature has always had an embarrassment of riches when it comes to queer literature, but having out queer writers has been somewhat elusive. Could you talk a little bit more about this? Do you think it's changing at all? Yes. Um, so I, I think I've sort of inadvertently become the expert voice of Korean literature, <laughs> Korean queer literature in English. I, I wrote an article for Litro magazine here in the UK about, uh, it's titled, How to Write Queer Korean Lit, a Manual. And it's not really a manual, but it was, it's, it's a sort of essay on queer literature in Korea, which the, that I wrote in a rage because the kind of, the, the impression that people overseas get, even Korean diaspora overseas have of Korea is that Korea has no queer identity, has no queer people, certainly does not have queer literature. And 
this is so false because especially not especially literature because we've been represented literally since day one the first modern korean short story is a queer short story it's about a boy who falls in love with another boy and that boy does love him back but apparently not enough so the first boy kills himself oh sorry spoiler alert (laughs) It's not like the greatest short story that you've ever read in your life, but it is the first Korean short story and it is queer. And since from that beginning, there have been many novels that touch upon queer themes, whether explicitly or implicitly. We do we did not have an out queer author until um, Kim B, who is a transgender author. She published a full length novel sometime in the last in some sometime in the last 10 years but fairly fairly recently and then there was nothing uh, as far as i can see uh, as far as i know and then there was um lee jong san who published customer uh i believe two years ago and then um kim bonggon who published uh summer back then uh actually they the english title has not been <laughs> translated yet but Kim Bong-gon, who came out and then published last year. So now we have out queer writers, uh, queer writers who are about to come out but are not sure yet. I translate a <laughs> few of those. And uh, so, um, and I think it's, you think that it wouldn't make a difference if an author comes out or not. For example, I think Susan Sontag never really came out. She believed in a kind of like open secret kind of system where, Everyone knew, but you just don't say that you are. And that's good. And that's cool. And we all love Susan Sontag. But it does seem to make a very big difference in the way that we, the readers, the publishers, the editors, the translators, the people who are not the writer, get to talk about the writer. It does make translators' jobs much easier if we don't have to keep dancing around the closet. Um, so I think it's, I think it, 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 it when I look at, uh, for example, Lee Jong-san's translator or Kim Bee's translators, it does make a very big difference. And I hope that more Korean authors will embrace coming out of the closet as opposed to embracing ambiguity, which while very rich in literary tradition and whatnot, sometimes things are just gay and they need to say that. And how did you choose the pieces for the um, feature in Words Without Borders? There were a few that, so I was given three to choose. Uh, um, I did not want to choose anything that I had translated. That was a, that was a kind of rule that I was going in. And um, I really wanted Lee Jong-san and I really wanted Kim Bong-gon because they were both out. I also wanted Kim B, but she had been trans- she had been published before in Words Without Borders, and which is fine. But then I wanted to give another writer a chance, and I knew that one of my colleagues at Smoking Tigers, which is a Korean literary translators translators group that I co-founded, she was translating uh, some queer poetry by Lee Hemi which is what we ended up submitting and got accepted. And then a sample that I did the year before, uh, the rights holder, 
the the rights holder submitted it to mentioned it to Words Without Borders, and they asked my permission to to publish that sample. So I said yes, and I ended up publishing myself, but only on condition that we increase the number of pieces to four from three. And so it was really just me wanting the first the the, the first uh, writers to really come out from the very beginning of their career, uh, who are young and who are up and coming, because I feel like Words Without Borders is very forward-looking, not not so much retrospective, but, uh, but they like fresh voices. They they take a chance. I debuted on Words Without Borders with uh, John Simmons Genesis, which is also a queer work. And this is, I think, the second piece, the, the second science fiction work to be translated into English and published in an English language uh, medium. So, uh, so they're very they're very experimental. They're very daring, and that's what I kind of wanted to bring to that project. Jeremy, you translate from Chinese, but you've translated not just Singaporean authors but also mainland Chinese authors. Do you translate authors from Taiwan as well? Yes, um, I've done the entire Chinese-speaking world. Um, mainland China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Macau, mm. Malaysia, and Singapore. Mm. Um, and I think it's great that the Chinese language has spread so far and wide. Um, but the different ways in which it's used and it's intersected with the other cultures and languages of the places it's found its way into has been really interesting, like particularly in Singapore and Malaysia, where English and Malay um, words have found their way into the vocabulary um, and it it can be a challenge keeping all of these varieties straight in my head um, and sometimes people decide to use Taiwanese or Cantonese dialogue um, which adds another layer of complexity but I think as a translator um, I want to stretch myself as far as possible um, within the target language but that also includes exploring the far reaches of the source language. Um, and right now, for instance, I'm working with Yenka, who lives right here in Norwich. Um, and yes. she uses some very interesting um, Sichuanese expressions in her work. And it's very much influenced by her being from Sichuan, and in fact, specifically from PCN, which has its own dialect that is sometimes slightly different from mainstream Sichuanese, which is, again, very distant from Mandarin. Um, so I guess, as is inevitable with a language spoken by so very many people, um, Chinese covers a vast number of varieties. Um, and Anton has talked a little bit about uh, the some of the difficulties in navigating the publishing world um, as a translator. Um, I was wondering whether you now are in a position to choose what you translate, or are you still also kind of in discussion with publishers? Um, very much so. Um, I, I would say about 50% of my work comes to me in that a publisher already has a property and they're looking for a translator. It doesn't come to me in the sense of they knock on my door often. You still have to um, audition for the job, um, but at least they're aware you exist. And the other half comes from work that I pitch to publishers. Um, and that's a much more laborious process because you 
I read widely in Chinese um, across all these territories and find work that not only appeals to me, but that I think I could do justice to and that I think there is an English readership for. And then I knock on many, many doors with samples that I've translated under my own steam and a synopsis and as user-friendly um, a version of marketing copy I can come up with. Um, so there's still a lot of navigating of this terrain that isn't strictly our job. You know, quite often we end up doing the work of an agent and um, a scout and an editor as well. But I think it's a labor of love and it will continue until maybe the day comes, if it ever comes, when there's a better apparatus in place for getting work into English. But at the moment, a lot of it is in the hands of translators. And I've been lucky that I've lived in London and then New York, so I've been able to make contact with a lot of publishers that way. And I'm currently a member of the literary translation collective, Sedilla and Company, which has a lot of expertise of publishing because we've got people in the collective who worked as agents or in publishing. And the pooled knowledge has helped me a great deal in understanding how the landscape is laid out and how best to get these books to the point of publication. Um, so I, I wouldn't say I get to pick what I translate at all, but I do feel I have a bit more agency within the industry. Anton, you mentioned um, that you're also part of a translation co collective in Korea. Could you tell us a little bit more about Smoking Tigers? Sure. Uh, Smoking Tigers actually started here in Norwich. It started uh, at BCLT Summer School, where the Korean language cohort for that year, I believe it's 2017. We, uh, one of the plenary sessions was with uh, Starling Bureau, which is another translators co collective. And our one, one of our founding members, Sophie Bowman, said, oh, why don't we start something like that ourselves? So we talked a bit to, we talked a bit to, um, to Starling Bureau and we discussed it with, um, with Deborah Smith who, had, who was passing by at the time. And she said it was a great idea with our mentor, with my mentor, Sora Kim Russell, and she said, oh, it'll be great if we all just got together. And so we decided to create a group based in Seoul, although now we have members in Singapore and also Toronto and Iowa City, where we would be able to exchange information and edit each other's works and pitch each other's works and edit each other's pitches and generally just create a kind of sense of community between literary Korean literary translators who are already very close friends. So and I happen to be I happen to be a web designer. So I built a website and we just we started doing workshops. We started uh, we've done a queer bilingual reading where our very intrepid smoking tiger, Soje Lee, who translates poetry, including Lee Hemi. She put together, she rented a space, she got funding from LTI Korea. Uh, she invited all the writers and all the translators for our Words Without Borders feature, and we had a reading in Seoul. It was very well attended. So um, 
And so these groups, they, they do help a lot. Sometimes it's just a website and a bunch of translators talking to each other on Slack. Uh, but it seems to, but we've actually managed to not, we've actually managed to have a lot of efficiencies and uh, not have to deal with certain situations where we know that we'd be reinventing the wheel. We can just go to someone who's already been through the experience and say, what do I do here? And they will make suggestions and we'll be able to work it out together. And that has made a huge difference in how we do our work. What you said about you already being close friends, I think chimes with something I've been noticing in the translation community in general, that we are collaborative and we do help each other instinctively. But creating formal structures within this can take place, within which this can take place more systematically, I think is tremendously helpful. And over the last few years, um, a number of these literary translation collectives have sprung up. Um, the Alter American Literary Translators Association blog has been running a monthly series of interviews with these collectives. Um, and it's been fascinating to me to investigate all the different ways in which they're structured and all the different ways in which their members derive benefit from being part of such an organization. But what we are seeing is that um, literary translators are acknowledging that actually there aren't existing structures in place to give them the help and support they need. And so we're going out and building them for ourselves and creating the support systems that we need to do what we do. At the end of the day, translation really is a collaborative art form. This is something that Deborah Smith taught me. If you're a writer, you can you can be in a room by yourself and you write and you there's a point in which it becomes collaborative, but it is fundamentally something that you do on your own, whereas translation is fundamentally something you do with your writer. Your writer could be dead for decades, like my Kang Gyeong was dead and I still translated her, but it was still very much a collaboration where I was working with the author in order to create another work of art. And also, like what Jeremy mentioned about how we have to be scouts, agents, editors, um, sometimes mediums and <laughs> therapists all at the same time. Um, so being a translator means that you have to really have a collaborative mindset. And publishing especially, I feel, writing is you do alone, but publishing, that's, that's a group activity. That's a collaborative activity. My background is in theatre, and I've always known that while you do have to do a lot of work on your own, the real magic happens when people come together, um, often in physical space, and I think nothing can replace that. But these days, you can also gather together virtually, and there are a lot of communities that are forming on the internet as well as in physical space. So I think translation is always going to be collaborative. And the more connections we can find within that, the more ways we can find to bring people together, the stronger we're going to get as a community. Thanks to Jeremy and Anton. If you have questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. We're on Facebook. And you can also ping us an email at info at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. And also you can sign up to our newsletter at the National Centre for Writing website, which is nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. 
If you join the newsletter, we'll send you information about all our latest events and writing opportunities. Meanwhile, you can find me on Twitter at Tynamus and Steph, where do you hide? I am at Steph X McKenna. Thank you very much for listening. Do keep writing and join us next week where we'll be looking back at Noiridge 2019.